Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 140. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am very happy to be bringing you an interview with someone who has been on Therapy Chat before. My guest is the wonderful Sharon Martin, LCSW. Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Of course. My pleasure, Laura. I always love talking to you and there's so much overlap in the work that we do, but I use your blog posts and uh, all the different things that you're doing so often with my clients. So I said, hey, let me get her back on here and ask her some stuff that I want to let my clients know about. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So um, let's just start off, if we can, by you telling our audience, for anybody who's not familiar with your work, who you are and a bit about what you do. Sure. Well, I am a psychotherapist and I work in San Jose, California. And so I work in private practice at this point. And the focus of the work that I do in my practice is helping people overcome issues around codependency and perfectionism and people pleasing. And, you know, all those things really overlap in a lot of ways. And often a lot of the clients that come and work with me are people who experienced growing up in an alcoholic family, sort of the adult child of an alcoholic is kind of the label that we put on that just to help us kind of, you know, put it into some sense of understanding what some of the common issues are. Um, And so in addition to the clinical work that I do, I do a lot of writing. As you mentioned, I write a, a blog called Happily Imperfect for Psych Central and write for some other places as well here and there, but I often write about these same topics. So like you said, you can find out find out more about what I'm doing and, and a lot of the writing that I do either there or um, on my website. Yeah. And I'll be sure that at the end, you get a chance to give a link to where to find all your stuff. Because like I said, I mean, I use it all the time with my clients and, and I always find everything you write to be so helpful. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that it is helpful. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is growing up in a family where one parent 
at least one parent is an alcoholic. So there are certain characteristics of families that are headed by a parent who's an alcoholic that are pretty common in what I see in my clients who come in as adults. And I know that what you mentioned, codependency, perfectionism, and people-pleasing behaviors tend to be really common for these adults, but they don't always recognize it as being related to the way their childhoods were. So I was just wondering if you could sort of describe what the family dynamics are like in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic. Sure. I, I mean, we can kind of get into so, what some of the, the common dynamics are. I'll just sort of preface it by saying that, of course, every family is different. And this may or may not be true for the family that, that you, the listeners, grew up in. Um, although I think you you may, you know, find that some of it rings true for you and maybe some of it does not. Obviously, mm-hmm. every alcoholic family is a little bit different. And, you know, because alcoholism or addiction is a progressive disease, you know, that it um, it changes over time. And so depending on, you know, I think the stage of the alcoholic is and the age of the child, um, you know, when a parent is in different sort of phases of the drinking, if you will, or if they're in recovery, um, that will certainly have a big impact on how how the alcoholism affects the child. And then I think there's also, you know, going to be some mitigating factors about, you know, um, if there are other support people or other support systems that are um, helping, again, sort of um, mitigate some of the, the challenges that are going on. But just to kind of to start us off, I think one of the primary things that happens as the alcoholism progresses is that really the the whole family system starts to revolve around the alcoholic and the alcoholic's ability to be able to have a constant supply of alcohol and to be able to drink and do drinking-related things, if you will. And so everything sort of becomes about that. And and each individual plays a part in it, really unknowingly, a part in being able to sustain this system. And when we think about, you know, sort of family systems or any kind of system, there's really this this sort of um, big kind of pressure for it to just keep going the way that it's going, to maintain the system in its current functioning, even if it's really dysfunctional. Um, And I think this is the part that can be really hard to understand is, you know, why do we as the family members of the alcoholic, you know, continue to do these things that sort of don't make a lot of sense in some ways that enable the alcoholic to continue the drinking behavior that we all want him or her to stop. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense on the surface. But like I said, when you kind of think about that family system, the alcoholic has a lot of power in the family. And so the alcoholic is sort of the one who's kind of making the rules. And sometimes these these kind of rules are not necessarily written down or even spoken out loud. They're just the things that everybody in the family knows that you're allowed to do this or you're not allowed to do that. And a lot of those family yeah. behaviors become centered around how do we cope with the alcoholics drinking or, you know, um, their behavior when they're drinking or recovering. You know, we learn that there are certain things that we can or can't do because, you know, we can't have friends over in, you know, in the late afternoons because by that point, mom has already had too much to drink. You know, it's those kind of things that maybe are never spoken, but we certainly learn 
that that's a rule in our family that we can't do that. Um, and so again, we kind of like, we're all focused on how do we navigate this, you know, kind of craziness that's going on in our families without really talking about what's going on. It becomes a big secret. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really not talked about in the family. And it's definitely not something that we feel like we can talk about outside of the family. So it becomes a, a big weight, I think, for people to carry, you know, this big secret, this big source of shame that we can't talk about, that we can't get help for. So I think there's a lot of really kind of suffering in silence that the family does, um, feeling isolated um, and, like I said, ashamed of what's going on. And there's there's a lot of pressure, you know, for the family to look like they have it all together, to look like, you know, a quote unquote normal family and not not let other people know that there's a lot of really dysfunctional things going on sort of behind the closed doors of, of the, the house, essentially. Yes. So I've noticed that there's a lot of overlap between families where the one of the parents is an alcoholic and families where, you know, the dynamics are dysfunctional in general, even if neither parent is abusing substances. It's like, you know, it's that same dynamic of, you know, we don't let people know what goes on inside of our home you know, whether it's there's abuse happening or the kids, you know, everybody looks perfect on the outside, but if people saw how things really were, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's the, I think that overwhelming feeling of shame and of secrecy and that it's chaotic and it's unpredictable. And, you know, especially, you know, for really young children, it's very scary a lot of times sometimes because um, it's physically unsafe or emotionally unsafe with a lot of, you know, yelling or verbal abuse. But sometimes, you know, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the alcoholic can can be pretty quiet, if you will. You know, they may be isolating themselves a lot or even not home a lot if they're out drinking. Mm-hmm. But again, there's still this feeling like even very small children can sense that there's sort of something wrong in their family, that there's this unspoken tension and stress within the family. And so, you know, we all know that children thrive on predictability. They thrive on routine, on, you know, knowing what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. That gives you a sense of security and of safety, which are, you know, very, you know, fundamental pieces of a secure attachment, you know, and I think just the ability to trust other people and um, form healthy relationships in childhood and in adulthood. And so those are sometimes those pieces that are missing, um, again, because the family in one way or another has got this focus on this problem. Like you said, it could be the alcoholism or sometimes it's it could be a parent who's got a serious um, mental illness that's untreated. Um, sometimes that can have a very similar effect. A parent who's extremely depressed um, or suicidal has has a lot of those same dynamics as well. Yeah, or if the parent is like an abuser, like if they're like sexually abusing one of the children, and you know, there's that same dynamic around protecting that yeah. secret and also right. avoiding that person getting upset and not being able to speak about what's really going on, not right. being able to really freely express their feelings about how things are at home in general. Yes, I, I think there ends up being that underlying feeling that 
if we were to let other people know about what's going on in our family, then then it would be disrupted. Even though we know that there's problems and maybe we even know that it is unsafe and we don't like it, you know, families, you know, don't want this disruption of, you know, the sense like somebody's going to come in and start telling us what to do. Or, of course, you know, children often are afraid, you know, their parents are going to split up. Somehow the children will lose their safety and security. Yeah, they'll have to leave their school. Um, And again, I mean, this is where there's I think there's these sort of contradictory pieces of it. Like I was saying that the home life is unpredictable and often chaotic, which is hard for children. And yet there's still going to be fear of the unknown, which is I'm still afraid that the change that might happen if somebody finds out about our family problems will create even more problems or they will create just problems that I don't know how to deal with. Because living in this family, I have figured out some coping skills to be able to navigate this particular type of dysfunction. I can, you know, we sort of learn, we learn to anticipate to some extent you know, you kind of get that hypervigilance and that real attunement to what's going on so that you can try to keep yourself safe, right? That can mm-hmm. sometimes literally literally be, you know, making a beeline for your bedroom and closing the door as a child so that you can avoid having a confrontation with your father or something like that. You know, so, you, so, you, so you've sort of learned how to navigate that. And, you know, there's the concern that, you know, if we have a different family dynamic, a different setup, you know, like I said, the parents get divorced or we have to go live with our grandparents or, you know, something like then I won't know how to deal with that situation, which, you know, chances are, you know, we could figure out how to deal with that situation. But we all are afraid of the unknown. I think that's just, you know, part of human nature is that we, you know, we worry about what we can't, you know, we can't see and we can't touch and we don't know what it's going to be. And so that creates that anxiety Um, that bubbles up in us when we think about, you know, asking for help or getting some support um, from other people about about our family situation. Yeah. And I would say, too, that oftentimes the children feel worried about the parent who is abusing alcohol or substances. And it's kind of like they see them in the way they can understand as being sick. You know, they're afraid that if anybody finds out just how not okay they are, that the child will lose them somehow. Yes. And I think going along with that, you know, there's also this feeling of if, you know, if my parents get a divorce or if I'm not around, then who is going to take care of mom? Let's just say, well, you yes. know, had mom's the alcoholic in this situation. It's like, if that has been your job is to make sure that, you know, mom gets into bed every night and the cigarettes put out. So, you know, that's not a danger you know, if like those have been your jobs in the family, then there's that worry of, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to mom if I'm not around or, you know, I don't want mom to get into trouble. I don't want mom to end up in jail. So again, there's a lot of that worry and a lot of that caretaking that, that we take on as kids because we love our parents, you know, no matter, I think, you know, That's right. the abuse or the dysfunction you know, we're attached to them and we care about them. They're the only parents we know. Yeah, of course, of course. And we feel protective um, and want to make sure that they are safe. And so, yeah, that's one of those pieces that oftentimes, you know, the roles almost get reversed in alcoholic families where, you know, the children are taking care of the parents instead of the parents taking care of the children. Because, you know, the parent is just 
you know, not able to fulfill those kinds of responsibilities, whether it's, you know, basic things like, you know, cooking meals or paying bills or certainly the emotional caretaking is often lacking that, you know, you can imagine the alcoholics very preoccupied um, and very shut down emotionally that, you know, they really don't have the ability to certainly be in touch with their own emotions or not a, not a wide range of them, certainly. Um, there are often a couple of emotions, like a lot of times anger, that is all you see. But they can't nurture, you know, you as a child emotionally and really encourage you to have much of an emotional range um, or allow you to express a variety of different emotions. The, you know, like I said, the whole family really gets shut down emotionally because it's so painful. You know, we really, you know, in alcoholic families, people don't really know how to deal with the painful feelings. And so the way they deal with them is, you know, the alcoholic is drinking and sort of numbing out all the emotions that way, you know, and for the other families, there's a lot of just sort of repressing, you know, pushing down of the feelings um, and sometimes, you know, finding other ways to kind of numb out with other substances or food is a big one, of course, um, or even just, you know, TV electronics, just kind of zoning out is, you know, sometimes the way people cope. Yes. And I would say from my experience, I want to bring up two dynamics that I've heard a lot. One is where the child had to, the mom would send the child to the bar or the child would even go with uh-huh. the alcoholic to the bar yep. as a way to sort of make sure the person stayed out of trouble or the child is going there to fetch them for the mom, uh-huh. yep. which really puts a child in a terrible position. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, had clients tell me very similar things where they were taken to the bar by their alcoholic parent at a very young age. And sometimes they're put in unsafe situations by the yep. alcoholic parent. Absolutely. Or they were to wait in the car while the alcoholic went in to drink in the bar. Or like you said, the other one is, you know, go find your mother, go find your father who's out drinking somewhere and bring them home safely. You know, that became the child's job, which, of course, you know, is completely inappropriate um, for a child to have that kind of responsibility. But yeah, sometimes that does happen. Exactly. So the child becomes even to the alcoholic parent, the child is in more of a parentified role of you have to come home now, you know, Uh and they have to like, they're like the stand in for the other parent, but it also, you know, it doesn't like, it gives no awareness to what the child, maybe the child had an argument with a friend at school that day. Who are they going to talk about that with when they have now this responsibility to go and get their dad or mom from the bar and bring them home. And then they know that when they get home, there's going to be conflict with the other parent, you know? Yeah, there's, you know, most of the time there isn't anybody in the family that they can talk to honestly about their problems and their feelings. And then that goes for, you know, the problems within the family. And like you said, like the problems that they're having, you know, with their peers or in other areas of their life, it's both, it's just, it's not safe it's either met with anger and blame. It's kind of turned around on them or it's ignored. I think, I think that's a lot of it is that, you know, everybody in the family is preoccupied with other things, again, sort of maintaining this dysfunctional family system and that nobody has the emotional wherewithal, you know, to sit down with Johnny and ask him how he's feeling and how his day was 
because again, this starts, I mean, it's, if we were to do that, if we had that capability in this family, it would start bringing up all of the quote unquote problems, all of the painful feelings that, you know, this family is working on trying to deny <laughs> everything yeah. that's going on. We're trying to maintain this system, which means we have to say there is no problem. There is no alcoholism. That alcoholism, if we do acknowledge it, is not causing these kinds of problems. That's not what's going on here. And so if you're starting to bring up, you know, these kinds of challenging feelings, that sort of puts the whole system in jeopardy. The system is maintained by everybody keeping their mouth shut. They're keeping their feelings bottled up. And, you know, everyone just focusing on, okay, let's just, you know, do our best to try to, you know, tiptoe around the alcoholic and then, you know, the problems that are associated with that. You know, it's very much that sense of like, I'm just walking on eggshells here. You know, I'm just trying to maintain the status quo, not rock the boat, not cause any problems, not introduce anything new to the family. Yes. So and that's that brings to mind the other common dynamic I've heard from clients where maybe the parent who was abusing alcohol is a single parent and Uh the child would come home. And just kind of, you know, come home from school and be like very hypervigilant about, okay, what am I uh-huh. about to walk into? Am I going to find yes. happy dad? Am I going to find drunk dad? Am I going to find dad crashed his car during the day? Am I going to find hungover yeah. dad? You know? Yeah, that's that unpredictability that, you know, feeling of being unsafe because I don't know what to expect when I come home. I don't know who I'm going to get, essentially. And I think, you know, like you said, it's probably more pronounced in single parent families. But I think kids, you know, when their parents are together, still experience that that feeling of dread and anxiety about not knowing. And like you said, there's, you know, there's that hypervigilance. Again, that's just one piece of how like the whole family is focused in on what's going on with the alcoholic as a way of like self-protecting, I have to, I have to really know what his mood is so that I can predict if he's going to do X or Y here so that I know how to deal with it. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code CHAT to get two free months. Right. And that goes back to what you said about those coping skills. And I know people sometimes talk about coping skills as something that you learn in therapy to help you through. But I think you're talking about what we would really call Oftentimes we would call maladaptive coping skills. 
Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I kind of use the word unhealthy, but yes. essentially the same thing. But yes. yeah, like we all develop coping skills to get through life. I think, you know, it's not, to, we don't, I guess, you know, just for the simplicity of our conversation, you know, we can kind of talk about them as sort of healthier or less healthy, but of course there's like all this area in between. They're not, they don't nicely fall into categories like that necessarily, but um, some definitely work better for us and some ultimately cause us more problems. You know, and the way I, I really think about this is that, you know, living in the in the alcoholic family, it's very stressful. It's very challenging. Um, and like we've been talking about, you know, kids from a very young age, they learn how to deal with that. They learn how to navigate that system in order to, you know, keep themselves safe emotionally and physically the best that they are able to. But we don't, when we're little like that, we don't have a lot to work with. And we do not have anyone who is modeling, you know, sort of the healthy coping skills. So we just do the best that we can. And then this is, you know, kind of where we end up in, in adulthood, you know, sort of struggling with certain aspects of our relationships or just aspects of our life because we are continuing to use those sort of unhealthy coping skills that we learned through no fault of our own. Mm -hmm. They were truly the best that we could do when we were children um, and with the resources that we had. But it's often in adulthood or maybe, you know, in adolescence where you start to realize like, this isn't really working that well for me. You know, this being, you know, super responsible and taking care of, you know, my parents, you know, when I was 10, you know, that was like a pretty good coping strategy for me and that family. But, you know, here I am when I'm 30 and, you know, I'm burnt out at work and I'm, you know, resentful because I keep, you know, giving and giving and doing things for my partner and my friends and I don't get anything in return. Then you start to go, well, you know, hey, maybe this isn't working out so well for me anymore. I really need to make some changes. I need to learn how to set some boundaries and I need to learn how to take better care of myself, you know, so that I will feel better and I will be happier and I'll be healthier and that's where, you know, there's there's sort of like there's there's roots that go back, you know, to our childhood in some of the things that are that are causing us, you know, challenges in our adult life. Um, and maybe the, the the connection is not always obvious, like you were saying at the beginning of our conversations. But but often that's that's what's happened is that, you know, they are really things that um, worked well for us at one point. But now we realize we have more options, you know, that to me, that's one of the big things is, you know, like once you get to be an adult and you leave home, it's not like all of this just magically goes away. You know, I think that's often the fantasy is I'm going to leave home and I'm going to leave all this dysfunction behind and I'll start fresh and I'll be different. But, you know, like we obviously can change. But, you know, to some extent, like this mold has been set and we have to work hard to make the changes that we want, you know, as adults. But yes, I mean, it, it comes with us <laughs> into adulthood. Yes. Um, and, you know, it takes us a long time to kind of unwind some of it and and figure out what else we can do. But like I was saying, I mean, one of the great things is that you recognize now I have so many more choices. There are so many different ways that I can manage things. I have more resources. I have more support people, hopefully. You know, when you're a child, you're you're limited. I mean, there's, you know, only so much that you can do. You obviously don't have independence, you know, to to um, exercise a lot of the options that you have when you're older. 
Yes, very little control and you have to do the best with what you have. But when you become an adult and you start to examine, hmm, now why do I do this? And is it working for me? That's your opportunity to say, how do I want to do things differently? What are the, you know, what are the needs that I have that really weren't met when I was younger? And how can I get them met now in a way that's healthy for me and healthy for my relationships? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and something even just as straightforward as, you know, deciding what relationships you want to continue to have. You know, when you're a child, you get the family that you get, basically. Um, You don't get to choose, you know, whether you want to continue to have a relationship with your parents when you're living under their roof, Mm -hmm. you know, but you have to be an adult and you now realize that, wow, I can choose to no longer be friends with this person who continues to, you know, speak abusively towards me. That's an option that I have. And that's, those were not options that you had as, as, as a child. And it's, you know, sometimes it can just be very empowering to realize that, that there are those options for you now. I think sometimes we don't even see them because it's almost like the blinders have been on for so long that you just feel like, oh, I just got to go along with, you know, what everybody wants me to do and the way things have always been. Um, But really, there's, you know, there's a whole whole lot out there. We don't have to do what we've always done or, you know, be the person that our parents or other people, you know, kind of pushed us into being. Right. You know, and I think one of those things being hyper responsible, like you mentioned, is something that oftentimes people just keep on doing. They go, I just work really hard and, you know, work, 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 work. And oftentimes that can be a way to sort of not feel the feelings Uh that are still there from from that childhood. And, yeah, you know, it can really kind of interfering with being able to see your options. but reality is if you look, you know, kind of look within, you don't have to do things the way that you've always done them just because that's what you learned when you were a kid. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of, Laura, is that, you know, I think sometimes, you know, folks, you know, when we start talking about making changes, there's almost this sense or this fear like that we're suggesting that you do a complete 180 and like, you know, you do the opposite of what you've been doing. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to something like being very hardworking, being very responsible, taking care of other people, you know, these are definitely things that are socially acceptable. They are encouraged in our society to a certain extent, and they definitely have their pluses. So Mm -hmm. it's not like we want to just completely stop being a hardworking Um, responsible person. Oftentimes, it's just like, can we dial it back a little bit? You know, can we do a little bit less of that? Can we learn to balance it out a little bit more with some rest and some fun? Right. You know, so so that um, not at the expense of your unhappiness. Yeah, it kind of works better for you that you're, you know, you're getting the advantages, but not the disadvantages of doing things to the extreme. You know, and that's that's definitely one of one of those outcomes of of growing up in an alcoholic family is that things often, you know, we sort of see things as black and white, you know, it's like it's right or it's wrong or it's good or it's bad for us. And oftentimes there's there's a lot of the shades of gray. There's things that we can do a little bit of and that can be and that can work well. We don't have to do it, you know, to excess or extreme with things. We can, you know, have a little bit more self-compassion, you know, for ourselves and 
we can set more realistic expectations for ourselves rather than just being so hard on ourselves all the time, you know, almost to that perfectionistic um, standpoint sometimes, you know, that, that again is sort of that, that outgrowth of, of, you know, I think the shame and, you know, just being so shut down and needing, you know, the approval from somebody or something outside of yourself to validate that you're worthwhile. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of, you know, just, just thinking about small changes, I think is, is often much more doable for people. And it's less scary, obviously, than saying, you know, let's, you know, let's overhaul, you know, all these coping skills that you had. Oftentimes it's just some small changes, some small adjustments can make a big difference for people. That's very true. Very true. So one thing I wanted to be sure to touch on is if you could tell us kind of what are the the common roles that people tend to have in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic? Sure. Um, I can go over that briefly for you. So so these family roles um, for an alcoholic family were developed um, by Sharon Wegshader Cruz, and I probably butchered her name, so sorry about that. But um, And she did a lot of work um, with alcoholic families, and she came up with these five um, specific family roles that um, she just saw over and over again working with alcoholic families. And it really is pretty remarkable, I think, when you, when you hear a little bit about them. My experience is that it really resonate with people and like I said, it, it's it's almost just sort of shocking to hear them and go, oh, yeah, that was that was me. That was my role or that was my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of how pervasive they really are for people. So the first role is is called the enabler. And this is in most families, it's usually the spouse if there is one. And maybe I should just back up for a second is um, these roles are sort of semi fixed within families. Um, people can switch roles. And you can have more than one role at a time. So it does get a little bit confusing, but I'm just going to tell you sort of the, mo- the most um, common formulation of how this looks. So, so usually the enabler is um, the spouse and the enabler is the primary person who is trying to maintain um, the status quo and is trying to, um, you know, sort of unconsciously help the alcoholic continue drinking but not have the negative consequences disrupt the family system. Um, and then the next one is the hero. And this tends to be most often the oldest child in the family. And the hero, you know, I like to think of the hero almost as the perfect child or the very responsible child. That's how some people will um, think about the hero. I mean, this is the person who is supposed to really sort of save the family, if you will is, you know, so good and so perfect all the time. You know, this would be often that parentified child who takes over the adult responsibilities and just makes sure everything gets done in the family and is sort of, you know, supposed to bring this positive attention to the family. And then after that, we've got the scapegoat. And this child is really sort of the opposite of, of the hero. This is, this is the child that receives most of the blame there's the child who is identified as the problem. So this might be a child who was acting out and getting into trouble. So instead of trying to get attention from positive achievements like the hero, the scapegoat is trying to get achievement or sorry, is trying to get attention, negative attention, essentially. 
And then the next two roles are the lost child and the mascot. And so these are often the youngest child. And sometimes, you know, if there's a third child here, they may have both of these roles. The lost child is kind of, will kind of go off into his own world. He will often isolate himself and, you know, kind of be distant. It might be the child who will go in, you know, sit in front of video games and kind of entrench himself in TV, video games, books, sort of a fantasy world as sort of an escape. And then the mascot is really sort of like a class clown. This is the child who tries to diffuse the situation with humor and jokes and goofing around and trying to get people to laugh. So, so those are the, you know, those five family roles. And like I said, you know, people can move around within the roles. You know, for example, if like the child who has been the hero child, you know, does something that um, causes them to sort of fall from grace here, sometimes they will become the scapegoat and the scapegoat will become the hero. So you end up with situations like that. You know, and obviously it, it does vary depending on how many children there are in a family. Obviously, there's not always this many children to <laughs> fulfill all of the True. roles. True. Um, and so, you know, what, what we have found from the research tends to be that most likely, like I said, the role tends to be most um, strongly associated with the, the birth order of the children. Although certainly, you know, the, the child's sort of innate temperament or personality traits may impact, you know, or gender of children too, certainly in some families, impacts which role they take. So it's not, you know, it's not um, 100% like this all of the time, but it is, it is pretty interesting to, to think about how everybody plays a part in that system. And like I said, like the enabler is the one who is primarily trying to maintain this system, but everybody's role really does play its part in trying to um, keep the status quo going in this family, as dysfunctional as it may be, that is what the whole family system is working on doing. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And that's really helpful. And I mean, I think it is uncanny when you talk to people. And I, I personally believe that those roles and dynamics play out the same, whether it's an alcoholic family or just a generally dysfunctional family, you know? Mm-hmm. You can you can name the same roles and, and see how people do the same behaviors. And it's like how it's almost like there's a playbook. It's like, how do I know. all know what to do? But it's it's pretty fascinating. So that's why I wanted to share it, because when I've showed those roles to people who grew up in alcoholic or dysfunctional families, they're always just like you said, like, oh, oh, my gosh, that's me. And that's my sister. And that's my brother. And. I think this was my mom and, you know, so it's really, um, I think it just helps organize something that seems so overwhelming when it's actually your own family and just to look at it on paper and go, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we did. Yeah. And I think maybe there's some element that maybe helps break down some of the stigma and isolation around it too. Just when you realize like, no, it was not just your family that had these roles. It was not just your family who, you know, was acting like this, not just your family who had this big secret. There were, you know, unfortunately, there are tons and tons of families who are struggling with very similar issues, and it plays out in very similar ways. But you don't realize that because we're not talking about it. Yeah, and, and to me, the other thing that that's kind of fascinating about it, too, is just you know, even in healthier families, siblings within within a family can have such different experiences. 
But I think this is very poignant too, just to, you know, recognize that, you know, two or three or four siblings in this family can have such a vastly different experience of growing up in the alcoholic family in terms of what was expected of them and how they went about trying to cope with it um, and what the, you know, sort of the outcome has been for them, what they continue to struggle with as an adult. Yeah, it's, it's interesting just how, how different that experience can be for people. Yeah, it's so interesting. I often talk to people who will say, you know, maybe it was just them and a younger sibling and they'll say, why do I feel so terrible and so, you know, wounded by my childhood, but I look at my younger sibling and they really don't seem to suffer the same way. And I, I always say, well, what did they have that you didn't have? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, you, <laughs> the older <laughs> sibling <laughs> who was, you know, they're kind of buffering and helping to soothe and ease things as much as possible for the younger sibling, which is, you know, not always the case. They can't always yeah. do that, but it's, it's a pretty common scenario. Yes. Yes. They often are the protector. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, I think, part of that hero that often that oldest child is the one who, you know, keeps the little one safe. Yeah. Which is, you know, then the older one misses out even more on the normal developmental tasks of childhood and doesn't get to be just a kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's often, often the feeling that people have is that they, they didn't get a chance to be kids to just play and be carefree and, you know, do normal you know, childhood activities, it was, you know, they had to grow up really fast. Yeah. So for the last, last part of our conversation, I would like to ask a question that was submitted by one of our listeners. I think this is so fun that someone who was listening um, found out because I told them that I was going to be interviewing <laughs> you and they said, oh, I want to ask her a question. So this, this is the question. It's from Elizabeth. And she said, as someone who grew up with an alcoholic father, I personally know the burden that alcohol addiction places on families from a very early age. She said that she did in her therapy, a genogram where she mapped out characteristics of her family relationships and realized that there was transgenerational alcoholism and substance abuse on her father's side of the family, um, especially among the males. And so she wants to know, what can you say, Sharon, about what are the drivers that cause individuals to repeat those behaviors across generations? Because she's wondering why someone who grew up in a family where their parent was an alcoholic would grow up and do the same thing, be an alcoholic. Yes, it's a, a fabulous question and one that I think on the surface is, you know, a big conundrum. Like, why would you repeat, you know, this mm -hmm. very dysfunctional system? You know how devastating it was for you and you don't want to do the same to your children. And I, and I really do believe that that is, that is true for people is they don't want to repeat this cycle. You know, so interestingly, I think we, we should probably just throw in one, one piece is that, you know, we know that addiction has a genetic component. So that's part of it is that some people are, are more prone to, you know, becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or other kinds of substances or things. Um, so that's part of why we see alcoholism or drug addiction, um, 
you know, going through generation upon generation. But the other part is that these family dynamics get repeated over and over again for a number of reasons. Like one is, you know, this is what was modeled to you. And like we were talking about is that this is how you learned how to solve problems. This is how you, you know, learn to deal with painful feelings. Um, this is how you learn to relate to other people. This is how you learned how to feel about yourself. Um, those basic ideas about your self-worth, you know, come from that experience in that alcoholic family. And so if there really isn't a lot of work that's done on recovery and learning new ways of coping, solving problems, different ways of thinking and feeling and, you know, really building some self-worth, some self-esteem, whatever you want to call it. We don't have anything else to work with. Like we know that that's not what we want to repeat, but unless we have, I think, really sort of accepted what has happened to us and really done a lot of work on healing and learning some different ways of dealing with, with the world, we, we essentially don't have any new ways of doing it. And that's part of what happens in the alcoholic family is it's a very closed system. You know, the denial is so strong that no new information can penetrate that, right? If, you know, somebody tries to, you know, bring in some new information or a suggestion or an offer of help or something, it's often met with, you know, rejection, you know, there's that feeling like we don't even have a problem. So why would we need that, you know, counseling or that AA group or, you know, whatever, or there's different, you know, coping strategy. Yes. So, so often that is what is happening is that, you know, people just aren't, aren't really learning another way of doing things. And I don't know, I feel like I keep saying this. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the truth is that it's always easier to just repeat what we already know than it is going to be to learn something new. And in this context, where the like the talking about learning something new um, involves having to uncover all of that buried pain yes. from, you know, years and years and years of painful feelings that we have smushed down, you know, so far, it's a lot of work to pull them up. And frankly, it's very unpleasant. It's mm -hmm. very painful for people to start to feel painful feelings when they're, you know, they have been trying so, so hard to not feel those feelings. So, I mean, it's definitely not that people want to repeat these patterns, you know, and I think a lot of times people have good intentions, but sometimes they also don't, not everyone has access to help and information. I think, you know, we take it for granted that, that everybody can go to counseling or, you know, can get the books or that. I mean, there are a lot of things out there more and more, but there are still, you know, some people who, who don't have a lot of access, but, you know, you know, things like just being able to listen to this podcast or, you know, going and checking out some books from the library is at least a starting place. I mean, it's probably not going to, you know, be able to, um, you know, change everything. I mean, for people, but, um, you know, the, the 12 step programs are also widely accessible and those are a great resource. I mean, they, you know, they have meetings by phone and by internet too, if people can't physically get to, um, those kinds of self-help programs too. So I don't know. I think now I'm just, um, babbling. <laughs> No, but I think that I'll answer some of it for her. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Thank you. And I think what you're you're kind of saying, but didn't say directly. So I'll just say it is that 
you know, people don't always have the self-awareness to realize that they're repeating the pattern. And, you know, they don't just like they had to not see how things really were in their family of origin. They can't really see how things really are now, but they it's possible to. But it's just, you know, they they aren't intentionally repeating it. It's unconscious. No. Yeah. I think, you know, and I think that shame and yes, really, you know, the feeling of helplessness that, you know, there are a lot of people who have really almost, you know, just but even by the time they get to early adulthood have really just sort of given up. Like mm-hmm. they just don't see that it's possible to do anything else. You know, and, and the thing is that, you know, for most people, drinking and substance use begins early, <laughs> you know, shockingly yes. early. So, you know, when you talk about that self-awareness, I mean, it's hard when you're 13 to have a lot of self-awareness, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of times, by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they have already started heavy, you know, drinking or drug use. Like the, you know, it's already started. So, so, so it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the numbing has already begun and it just kind of maintains and shows up in different ways throughout the teens and 20s and often thirties, forties. And then the person goes, Oh man, wow. Like what happened? How did I get here? I need to get help. Uh uh Yeah. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to therapy chat to talk about this. I think this was a really helpful and fascinating conversation. And where can people find more of what you're doing? Sure. My website is live well with Sharon so from there, you can find find everything you need. Wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Sharon, thank you so much. I just really enjoyed this. And I might ask you to come back again and talk a little more. So sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.